We begin this new series entitled Joy, and you will see on that card in your bulletin that every one of the messages over the next 15 weeks or so begins with the word joy. And uh, this morning, before we read two passages, I'd like to just take a minute to read a letter that I got out of my mailbox this morning. You know, I used to get uh, mail early in the day, not any longer. <clears throat> I think they come before midnight, but uh, here was this letter from this woman. I was privileged to find out that she needed a Bible, and she lives down at the retirement community where my mother lives, and she's from New York. She's lived there a number of uh, years. This woman used to work in New York City. She was a part of the garment uh, industry. In fact, some of the clothes you wear probably uh, have something to do with her. She's written textbooks. Uh, She is a professor, and from what I knew of her or know of her, she never um, spent a lot of time in the things of the Lord, but since she's moved in there, she has. So I'd just like to read this because I think this is a perfect example of a heart that's desperate, just like you, just like me. Dear Doug, what a surprise to receive a beautiful leather-bound Bible. And it wasn't authentic leather. (laughs) I was longing for a better Bible than my old Gideon one, but didn't know what best version to get to satisfy my needs. God must have noted my plight and prevailed upon you to solve my problem. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for giving me a new adventure in my spiritual life. I'm sure I will discover many more surprises tucked within its pages. And hopefully the word of the Lord will become the center of my life. It seems God always has a better plan than we could imagine for ourselves. She's in her mid to late 80s. Some of you are. Some of you are a lot younger. That's why we study the Word. That's why we do what we do on Sunday morning. We dig in to it. Because faith, which is leaning on Jesus, comes through His Word. And so this morning we begin a new letter, a new study, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we look first at the book of Acts chapter 16 where we read about Philippi as a city that Paul and Silas went to. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Mothrace. And the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. 
the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for all you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of praise of God. 250 years ago, one of the favorite hymns of the church was written. Written by a man who came to know Christ at age 17 under the preaching of George Whitfield. He wrote, Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. And then the last verse, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. 
Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Would you believe it? Within a couple of decades, he did wander. He left the faith. It wasn't that he no longer believed the doctrine. What he didn't believe was that God could forgive him for his wanderings. The story goes that he was in a carriage with a female friend. And they were riding down the road and they were riding right past a church building that had its windows open. It was summertime and they were singing the hymn that he had written. As soon as he heard those notes, he broke down in tears. And his woman friend reached out and said, Robert, what's wrong? He said, I would give a thousand worlds if I could experience the joy that I knew when I wrote those words. A friend of mine has said that he would give a few years' salary if he could have talked to Robert. He would have said to him, you know, you've forgotten something. Nothing can cause God to unseal what he's sealed. It's not your sin that's broken your relationship with him, it's your stiffness. It's your view that he is not able to continue to extend grace to you. Don't waste your sorrow. Go to him and you will find it as if you'd never left. A generation ago, Patty Hayefsky wrote a play entitled Gideon. And in that play, Gideon's out in the desert and he's mad at God. And I mean, he is spitting nails. He believes God's rejected him. He believes God does nothing in his life. He's totally forgotten him. And in the midst of his anger at God, God comes to him. And as soon as he sees him, he says, Oh God. Every one of my thoughts is of you. I've just been so caught up in my love for you, oh God. I want to take you into my tent. I want to wrap you in blankets. I want to keep you close to my heart forever. Lord, do you love me? If you love me, will you tell me you love me? And God said, Gideon, I love you. And Gideon said, but Lord, why do you love me? The Lord scratches his head and said, I really don't know. Sometimes my passion is just so unreasonable. Have you ever heard God say that to you? I mean, when you review your life, I'm not talking about years ago, I'm talking about a minute ago. Have you ever thought about the fact that 
his love for you is rather unreasonable? I mean, why would God die for you? Why would he condescend to take your punishment? There's only one reason. It's because you're his bride. You're part of his bride, the church. Did you hear about the man who announced to his congregation that he would be leaving them at the end of the service, he told them? He'd only been there less than three years, and he said, he, he said it this way. Brothers and sisters, I believe the Lord's called me away to begin a new ministry at another church in another town. And the Lord said, go quickly, and so this is my last Sunday with you. Now, before I give the benediction, is there a hymn that you might like to suggest that we sing? Guy in the back said, how about what a friend we have in Jesus? (laughs) Somebody said, you know, Christ I love. Christianity I love. It's Christians I can't stand. And you know something? Sometimes I I totally agree. Especially when I look in the mirror. Christ I love. Christianity I love. But Christians like me, I just can't stand. Jesus could never understand that. Neither could Paul. I mean, for months we've been looking at what Micah 6.8 means. He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with him? And what we've seen is, there's only one who does that. And his name is Jesus And then what Jesus does is he calls a bride out of the world who is ugly and he writes his signature on us so that we are able to go and write his signature on others. I mean, think of what Jesus did after the ascension. He ambushes a guy named Saul. He knocks him off his horse on the road to Damascus. He turns him from a hater of the church to a lover of the church, from one who seeks to destroy the church to one who is willing to die for the church. Why? Because Paul knew what Martin Luther was later to discover. Apart from the church of Jesus Christ, salvation is impossible. That's what Luther said. Apart From the church of Jesus Christ, salvation is impossible. You say, what's that mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is the church can save anyone. Luther knew that. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that's all Christ's doing. But what Luther was saying, what Paul would agree with is, every saved person cannot become what a saved person is to become apart from the church. And that's why he spends, Paul does, over his 32-year ministry, he spends all this time writing letters. And we've got 13 of them. And we know from those 13 
and from other letters of Scripture that he wrote more. And yet none of those letters speak of joy more clearly than Philippians. Four chapters, 16 times joy shows up as a noun or in its verbal form like rejoice. That's why German scholar Johann Albrecht Bengel famously said of this letter, Summa Epistoloi Gaudion Gaudiet. You know what that means? The content of this letter is this. I rejoice, now you rejoice. That's what Philippians is about. I rejoice, now you rejoice. Here in the face of impending death, Here in the face of facing Caesar and a death threat, Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, and it's all about joy. What prompts it? What causes his emotions to rise up? What causes him to focus on the objective joy Jesus has brought in his life? Only one thing does that, and that's the church. Although she's full of idolatry, although she's full of scandal, although she's full of sin and all the masks we wear to hide our sin, though we're full of corruption, Paul, as he thinks about the church there under house arrest in Rome, he remembers three things about the church that causes him to break out in overwhelming joy. And you know what those three things are? He tells us right out of the box. They're in these first verses. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the incomparable identity of the church. Look at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. A few months ago, I was at a church where the minister, in the middle of his sermon, asked this question. How many of you here are saints? And I was sitting near the back, so I got to see how many hands went up. My hand went up. And a couple of others. And there were 150 people there in the room. And I thought, oh, here it comes. He's really going to get them. He's going to reprimand them. He's going to identify what a saint is. But you know, he didn't do it. You know what he said? He said to them, God doesn't call all of us to be saints. He he knows we're sinners. And I thought to myself, you know, he's right in one respect. God never calls none of us to be, to be saints. He doesn't call us to be saints. He makes us saints. He doesn't call us to make ourselves saints. You know what the Greek word there is? Hagioi, which means 
holy ones or set-apart ones. That's not something you and I can do. It's something he does. When he saved you, he said, you're mine. Now, you may think you're yours. You may act like you're yours. And whenever you do, you're going to have trouble. You belong to me. I've dressed you in Jesus. And now, you are just like he is. You see, Paul understands that because he calls them saints in Christ Jesus. A few weeks ago, I mentioned a boy who went to a Gothic cathedral for church every week, and he sat right by the windows, and all the windows were stained glass, and under many of those windows was a name like St. Matthew, St. Luke, St. Mark. And one time an old person said to this boy, what is a saint? And he said, it's those the light shines through. Paul understands that. The first reason for his joy is he knows who we are. He knows our incomparable identity. He knows that in the kingdom of God's perspective, you and I who lean into Jesus are saints. They're not simply Philippians. They're not simply husbands and wives. They're not simply Greeks or Romans or Asians. There are saints upon whom Christ has set his love. In fact, you and I are as much a saint as we'll ever be. And if you are a Christian, that's who you are. Not because of you, but because that's who he's made you to be. Second, notice the inevitable change. Look at verse 6. I am certain or I am sure of this, that he who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. One time D.L. Moody was traveling to London. And on the voyage, he said to himself, I am going to take time to find my hero, Charles Spurgeon. And so he gets there and he preaches several nights and one morning he found the address of Spurgeon's house and he went there. And he's standing in the street looking up the couple of steps at this red front door and he knows that's Spurgeon's door but he takes a gulp. Finally he gets up the courage and he walks up those couple of steps and he knocks on the door. And when the door opens, there's Spurgeon standing in front of him, his hero. And in his mouth, in Spurgeon's mouth, is a long, thick stogie. Well, D.L. Moody never let tobacco touch his lips. He never drank any alcohol. So immediately, instinctively, he backs up, falls down the steps, and rolls into the street. Spurgeon's never seen anything like this. And so he walks down the steps into the street and looks down. Who are you? He said, sir, I'm D.L. Moody. You are my hero. But how can you as a Christian smoke a stogie? 
Spurgeon knelt down on the street and put his hand on his stomach and said, the same way a Christian could be so fat. Listen to what Spurgeon says about this promise here. This promise is the crowning joy of any Christian's life. If he who began a good work didn't also carry it out to the nth degree, we would be the most to be pitied. But thanks be to God, the work of grace is in the hands of the one who never leaves his work unfinished. You see what Paul's saying here? He's made you a saint, and as such, he will never stop changing you. You can't change yourself. He changes you. And when he begins, he always completes. Now think of the church at Philippi. If God hadn't compelled Paul and Silas to go to Philippi, which was the St. Louis of antiquity, it was the gateway city to, from Asia to Europe and Europe to Asia. If Paul and Silas had never gone there, there's a good chance the gospel would never have gone into Asia and never gone up into Europe. And once they're there, if they never went down by the river and met these women, including Lydia, who came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through the preaching of Paul and then was baptized, she and her household, meaning what? Meaning everyone, slaves, relatives, everyone in her household, saved and baptized. If that hadn't happened to Lydia, then that girl who was demon-possessed would never have followed Paul and Silas, crying out, these are servants of the Most High God. And if she hadn't followed them, Paul wouldn't have finally gotten ticked off at her and said, basically, shut up, demon, come out of her. And if they hadn't delivered her from her demons, then her owners, who was making a lot of money on her, being a fortune teller and everything, they wouldn't, he wouldn't have brought charges against Paul and Silas, and if charges hadn't brought, been brought against them, they would have never stood trial and been convicted and beaten and jailed. And if Paul and Silas had never been jailed, then there never would have been an earthquake that came and opened the jailer, all the jail cells, even the inner ones, and if the jail cells hadn't opened, the jailer would never have said, what must I do to be saved? If the jailer had never said that, he would have never gotten the answer and perhaps never come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, he and his household, and they all were baptized. And if that had never happened, there never probably would have been a church at Philippi. Do you see this? The comfort of the promise that God who began a good work will see it to the day of completion is not simply related to you and me and our own sanctification. What it means is God who began a good work, which is what? The kingdom of God. You see that? You and I are part of a kingdom of God. Bigger than ourselves. And one day, because God always finishes His work, one day you and I will see how all of this fits together.
Do you see why Paul's joyful? Their identity, their saints. God's done it. And whenever he begins something, he always finishes. He's putting together this mosaic and they're part of it. And so are you. And so am I. No matter what happens. And then finally, notice the inexhaustible vision. Look at verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Someone has said that every letter of Paul can be described by a word or a phrase. The book of Romans. The righteousness of God. The book of Colossians. The fullness of Christ. The book of Ephesians. The heavenly places. So what word or what phrase best summarizes his letter to the Philippians. Partnership. The word is koinonia in Greek. It's often translated fellowship. Because of your partnership, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now today we use that word in a crazy way. I mean, we have fellowship halls. It's a place where people can dance and eat and be bored. We have fellowship times. There's a funeral director who's far less skilled and professional than Chuck Trends, but here in this town. And I've done a number of services with this guy, and I always kind of laugh. I don't laugh. I just sort of smile internally at the gravesite. The last thing after the, the benediction's been pronounced, he'll always say, all of you are invited to such and such a restaurant for a little food and fellowship. I mean, I know what he means. He means you go to the restaurant and hang out, eat. That's not what Paul means when he uses the word fellowship or partnership. You know what he means? Because you are the possessors of a common heritage. What he's saying is, These Philippians and every Christian is a part of a possession, an inheritance. What is that? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ as the person of the Holy Spirit. Now think about Paul sitting there under house arrest in Rome. And he's thinking of these Christians at Philippi. And he's thinking about who they are. You know who they are? They're living in a cosmopolitan town. It got its name from Alexander the Great's father. It's a town of great wealth. And yet these Christians who stand outside that culture because they no longer worship the gods of the Romans or the Greeks, they are together in a little house. And we know from the book of Acts, it's Lydia's house. At least that's where it begins. They're living together. They're worshiping together. They're fully dependent upon each other for their food and their money and their physical care. When he sees the church, he thinks of this little insula, it was called, and these people would go outside of that place, out into the world, and people would ask them the same question, where is your temple? 
And they'd say, our temple? Come and see. Come and meet our God. And you know what they'd see when they got there? They'd see men and women, free people and slaves. They'd see three different cultures, Romans, Greeks, and Asians. They'd see every socioeconomic strata. And they would see each other loving each other, that there's no difference. They would see a group of people who were doing justice and loving kindness. And they were one to Christ through this unbridled love, this unbridled giving. I love the words of C.S. Lewis. They describe what the church is, whether we know it or not. He said this, when Jesus first encounters a soul, he always finds in that soul not desires that are too strong, but desires that are too weak. He finds in these souls half-hearted creatures who are fooling around with drugs and sex and ambition when infinite joy is what he offers. They're like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum when he's offering them a vacation at the sea. Until he captures us, We're too easily pleased. But once he's got us, once he secures us in his family, there is no desire that satisfies us unless it's eternal. You see, that's the way God changes us. He changes our desires. We begin to love each other and love those outside of the kingdom of God, and we want them to know what He can do for them as well. Instead of loving ourselves only and only those who are like us, we begin to see that everyone's like us. Everyone is satisfied with mud pies until He comes and He offers us a vision bigger than ourselves, bigger than us together. It's a vision as big as He is. That's the joy of being in Christ. And it's a joy that exceeds every emotion. And it's that joy that we will see over and over again in this letter. It's a gift. It's all grace. And it's all yours. No matter whether it's raining or sunny, regardless of the diagnosis, Regardless of the sin, he who's begun a good work in us, he will see it to the day of Jesus Christ. Total completion. There's only one thing that causes Paul to break out in joy. And that's the thought of the bride of which he is a part. And so are you. Think about that. Amen.